Hello and welcome to Commodity Conversations by the team at Mercado, the podcast where we aim to keep you up to date with the latest trends, drivers and moves in livestock, grain and fibre markets. I'm Olivia Agar. Thanks for listening in for another episode. Whiskey, Stilton, Bentleys and Lawyers. How about that for a focus for today's podcast? So if you haven't picked up on the common theme there, I'm sure most of you will have seen or heard it somewhere across the media this week. And that is, of course, the newly announced free trade agreement between the UK and Australia. So many of you listening now might be pretty chuffed with the idea of cheaper whiskey Stilton or Bentleys. But what we're most interested in is what this deal means for agricultural commodities. And we have our very good friend, David Cornish, Director of Agribusiness at Marcus Oldham College, joining us for the conversation to chat about that today. As always with David, it's a ripper of an episode with some great insight and food for thought, so make sure you listen to this one. And one of the really interesting questions that gets raised today that's worth highlighting is whether this trade deal is likely to have a big positive impact on Australian farmers or whether the other somewhat linked news of the ag visa is where the really exciting opportunity lies for Australian agriculture. Before we kick off though, a bit of a background as to what is in the FTA. So for beef and sheep meat, tariffs are going to be eliminated after 10 years with a transition of duty-free quotas until then. Sugar and dairy are also included with tariffs eliminated after eight and five years respectively. But the products that are more immediately winning from this are rice and wine that are going to be tariff-free as soon as the deal is done. So I'll hand over to Robert Herman and David in just a sec, but after you've done listening to this episode, make sure you go into the search on your podcast app and have a look and listen to the Marcus Oldham Ag Talk podcast, which David hosts as well. So if you're a fan of Commodity Conversations, I am very confident that you'll get a lot out of that one too. And finally, let's get on with the episode. Thanks, Olivia. It is great to be talking to David again, and uh, there's a lot on the horizon for, uh, or coming across the horizon for agriculture at the moment, but of course, most of the um, oxygen is being sucked out of the conversation at the moment by the, the free trade deal, and the people talking it up and very excited about it. Australia now has the first agricultural free trade deal with um, the UK. David, um, is, is the hype all fair and reasonable, or is it a little bit overblown or should we be getting really excited about this yeah rob i reckon there's a couple of ways we can we can look at that first of all i, I love um uh boris's uh, uh statement about this being the the whiskey bentley stilton and lawyers free trade agreement um so it's certainly in australia if you're into whiskey and you're into bentley's and you're into stilton's and you love lawyers um certainly i think for an australian consumer that there might be some wins there if we look at it from an Australian producer perspective, I think we've got to think about this strategically rather than tactically. Like if you said to me tomorrow, how much change it's going to make, I'd say very little. But what have we got? The reality is we've got a free trade agreement with the fifth largest economy in the world. We have free trade agreements with something like 25 countries, which is equal to, I think it's about um, a 50 percentile of the, of the world population. Now, so we've got Good access to a lot of countries. So the question is, how much of the how much of the food or how much of these products that we've got these free trade agreements on going to end up in the UK market versus the Asian market? 
So, Rob, my starting point is actually how much we actually give, we're exporting to those countries now. And from UK's perspective, um, the reality is it's very little. And, and, and that's got to go back to uh, when uh, UK joined the European common market. I think at that stage, it was something like 18% of our total exports was going to the UK. Back in the 50s, it was something like 80%. But we discovered this area called Asia. And one of the greatest things that almost happened to us is when they closed us out of those markets overnight, because we had to get off our backsides and find new markets. And we found new markets in areas that were growing, uh, were close to Australia, and we were competitive on. So the question is, now that we've got this new free trade question with UK, is that really where we're going to actually be starting to, to send our products versus these other markets, which are continuing to, to grow? It's a really good point, David. And, um, you know, we were very much closer attached to the motherland uh, 50 years ago. And, and as you point out, you know, the Asian market developed on our doorstep. But we're also, we were impacted by the impact of the UK joining the EU. So, you know, they suddenly had, um, you know, had much closer friends than us. But um, it, it, it could also be, and I like your comment on this, David, it could also be that, again, we were in a fortunate position and Australian agriculture has made the most of its opportunities and developed a diversity of markets. And we, we look at, we look very closely at a lot of markets, but of course, red meat's one that comes across our table all the time. That diversity of markets probably is, is the key to the looking for the real value that's coming out, you know, adding to that diversity of markets is the key to the real value that's coming from this free trade agreement, David. I'd agree entirely. I think one of the things you've got to th think about is, uh, and I heard this today, um, we we're talking about what would the UK market mean directly to us? And again, you've got to think about where we export and what type of product we export. For instance, you know, a lot of our, uh, our low value cuts obviously are going to some of the Asian markets, but with the UK market is actually opening up some interesting um, opportunities at that top end. Um, so for some high value, high, high premium cut products, which we haven't had before. So while it might only be a small amount in the scheme of things, it could make a significant difference to how we value the carcass now. Um, and and I go back to your point too, is that, you know, one of the things you taught as a banker, for instance, that the less concentration of, of debtors you've got, the better. So the less reliant you're on one country, the better you are. So there's less risk involved. So if we've got another country in there that we can spread our risk, that's got to be good. Yeah. And look, I, that's a really good point. And I was, I was listening yesterday to a conversation where it was explained by uh, Andrew Cox from uh, MLA that, you know, the diversity of our carcass, if you like. So we cut it up here and uh, we really add value to it by sending each of those components to special markets. And some of the markets we've got from what used to be almost throwaway lots has really added value to the carcass. But your point about this high-end restaurant, um, you know, David Littleproud maybe summed it up, David, when he was asked whether you know, Australian beef would be taking um, taking the place of UK beef. And his comment was, no, we only export top quality beef. <laughs> well, and again, if you look about where currently the UK gets its imports its beef from, it's from Europe. That's European breeds. Um, and I shouldn't get into an argument about the quality of the different breeds in regards to beef um, because 
uh, yeah, don't want a whole lot of phone calls, but um, we know that with regards to the quality of the product that we can put on the plates of the British consumer might be slightly better than what they're getting now from Europe. Now, speaking of what we can put on their plates, let's just touch for a minute on on sheep and lamb meat. And, uh, mm. you know, we're, we're like most, well, we're like the other major exporting country in New Zealand. Our supply is certainly constrained at the moment, but we haven't had much impact into the UK. In fact, um, Aussie sheep meat has made up about 15% of their imports and while New Zealand has made up 65%. Do you see that being impacted at all? And, and is it possible that we could actually find additional product to go to a country like the UK? Well, I think the problem there, mate, is, is, is as you know, is, is, is basically supply. Um, sheep numbers, are, as I understand it, obviously, are they at a historical low for this century or uh, yeah, last century? Yeah, 100 years. Yes, yeah, a hundred years. So yeah. we don't have the sheep we had, and and the markets certainly in, for instance, in the UK, China, a continual increase. So it then becomes a question of who's prepared to pay the most for our product, and if if UK is prepared to to it makes sense, then obviously uh, from a value perspective, then then I think there'll be opportunities there. But if it's if we can't compete where with their other in, importing nations and i'm still not certain how new zealand gets in in there and makes a quid um then yeah we'll make some money but again it's not i'm not sitting here going woohoo you know for the lamb industry it's a savior yeah yeah no and and that's that's right and i think um you know the the, the listening to mla's marketing strategy it's very much um recognizes the fact that we do have a constrained supply both of beef and sheep and lamb now so the objective is to find those high value markets that add value and and as i said before even to break the carcasses up and send the products to the to the best destination now you briefly mentioned earlier uh, i mean boris was talking he wasn't talking about beef and sheep when he spoke about the free trade agreement but you mentioned other commodities out of australia too that are going to be impacted and probably even you know more sharply and more than what we've yep. been talking about david yeah, so for instance, if you look at wine and rice, um, their their tariffs are eliminated from day one. Um, so I think that's, for, especially from the wine perspective, so if we go back to that question about having a concentration of debtors, that's what we had with the wine exports because of China, and China knew that and they took advantage of it. With this ability to maybe open up a bit more um, access to the UK market, uh, hopefully that will alleviate some of the pain that the wine industry is feeling. How much, I'm not really certain, but I think there'll be some opportunities there that, that they we haven't had before. So could we possibly see, um, you know, Barry McKenzie's Foster's campaign <laughs> replaced by Australian wine in those, um, you know, in those trendy places where the Australian young people get, gather in the UK? Well, I think, and this is the interesting thing, Australia's actually, wine industry's done a really great job at advertising in the UK. And it's actually used to have a, I think it still does, a very good name. Why I'm saying used to have, when I was in the UK, You'd see all the double-decker buses going around with Jacobs Creek or um, yep. Yellowtail or things like that. So we actually think – I think we've got a good reputation and a good marketing strategy in this. This is going to allow us to get in at a price point that we haven't been able to get in before. So I actually think that's going to be a, probably – if I said of all the commodities, I shouldn't – wine probably will get upset if I call it a commodity, but of all the products that are going to – I would have thought that's the one that's probably got the quickest upside. 
and and rice should be overlooked either because we've you know we've now got water in those rice growing areas and we're going to grow rice there was a few couple of years where we grew, didn't grow any yeah um that's got that's a great export product too yeah and again again you know those, those guys do a really good job at, at, at marketing their product overseas so I, again, it's that old adage: if it makes sense, if if it makes sense to um, the cost for getting it to the UK versus local local nut markets or America, for instance, then yeah, people will go for it. We're not just because it's free trade, and I use that term loosely, doesn't mean that it's actually going to increase the the, the 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 dollars we earn. Because again, it goes back where we've got constrained supplies; we can only make enough food in this country to, to feed around that 60 to 70 million people. We already have markets that are in the billions of people. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I've never thought about this until recently is that Australia's sort of pivoted from a, a perspective. If you think about the eighties and nineties, where we had all these surplus stocks and we didn't know what to do to a point now where we've actually got choice of markets where we go and, and never happened in my lifetime. So it's at a time, David, where you're going to need a lot of Marcus Oldham graduates to come out and uh, and help produce that grain and and meat and and seeds. Absolutely, uh, and and that's why I think I, again. I mean, again, I, I know I got a hark on with it, but it's, I still say this is such an exciting time to be in, uh, involved in Australian agriculture, and what I'd give to be, as I say, thirty years younger, forty years younger, whatever it is. <laughs> Right. Now we're speaking. To, we're speaking to David Cornish today on Commodity Conversations, and he's not as old as he's sounding. He's certainly got. You've certainly got young and good ideas. I just want to go back to the UK farmer again, though, because a lot of the what what caused the angst in getting this signed across, signed over, was you know their concerns about the impact that Australia's cheap beef. They mainly talked about beef, but our cheap product would be competing against them. And one of the reasons that they call our product cheap compared to what theirs is that their production costs are higher and there's certain things that they aren't allowed to do that we're allowed to do in Australia and not that we do anything that's unregulated or or, or not all above board but are we likely to see a, a reverse push back to Australia saying okay you want to send your, your product into the UK and, and hopefully into the EU as well so you're now going to have to you know, stack up and do the sort of things that we expect of our farmers in the UK and in France and in Belgium and countries like that. Is that a risk or, or a potential problem, David? Well, I, I think we've already seen it. Um, we already see that with, it's got to be EU credited with our meat and 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 look at canola. Um, therefore, the, the, the EU, which is probably our biggest market for, for canola, I think, you can um, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that they're having certain requirements about how we produce that product. So again, from that perspective of creating and linking supply chain, that might be the case, but am I concerned about that? I mean, the canola one, yes, because um, there's a few issues regarding what they're asking us to do. But if you want to play in that space um, and we've got to, we can't use growth hormones, um, uh, certainly doesn't, doesn't phase me. Um, and I think we can still do it cost efficiently. I think you know you've got to put yourself in their shoes uh, to be to be fair. Then I, I I'm a anti protectionist from way back. So again, but I understand um, that you know something like sixty percent of their income comes from subsidies. 
Now that most of them are environmental subsidies. And you know they've been struggling to make a quid from their production systems for a long time, and you've suddenly got—is this from their perspective? They're sitting there saying, "Is this the straw that's going to break the camel's back?" Um, so you understand the fear. Uh, I think what was done really well was actually working through the logic with them, and working through the logic with a consumer. And I think you know what they've also got to understand is why Britain is heading now. Is they're sort of like. Think about us when we left the EU, we suddenly discovered the rest of the world. And I think there's going to be huge opportunities for uh, UK uh, agriculture across the world. They're selling and it work out that, that you don't need France and Germany. But there is a, there's this growing population of, of consumers who are looking for high quality products in the Asian markets. So we're probably going to get more competition out of that for our existing markets. So, you know, that, that's another thing that we haven't thought about. It's a good point, David, that, uh, and I think they should be considering that and, and looking for those opportunities. But that also amplifies the, the wonderful position Australian agriculture is in right now. And, you know, I think from listening to what you're saying, it's really only just had a little bit more cream put on the top of the cake right now. So how are you seeing Australian agriculture? And if we come back and, and move away from the free trade for a minute, is, is that opportunity, you know, really be, being fully embraced or is there, are there things that we need to be thinking about at a high level to, to get the job going? Yeah, I probably, the next point's probably, it might be a slight link, Rob, to the, to the um, free trade agreement because it sort of came out of it, but it's a side issue, but it's a very, very important issue. And this is around working visas. Yeah. Um, and and what, what they've done is they've abolished the requirement for UK backpackers basically to spend, I forget how many days it is, uh, to renew their visas working on farms. And that was about 10,000 workers. The, 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 the reward for that was to the creation of these agricultural visas, which meant that we could get more people from obviously Asian countries on temporary ag visas. Uh, yeah. Now, it's not, it, it's a separate legislation or requires separate passing of bills within parliament. So it's a sort of like a, that's how they got the nationals on board with this type of thing. And it's a very important thing because if we know one thing at the moment where agriculture is constrained in Australia, it's, it's, it's labor. And so this is, I think this is the space that we need to watch uh, rather than the free trade agreement is actually that we get this temporary ag working visa through, because if we don't suddenly we're down 10,000 workers and we've got no replacement and it's not, it's not a lay down Messiah that they'll actually get it through the independence. Um, and there's a few people kicking up the fuss, but Australian agriculture needs temporary workers in some shape, form or manner, and we're not getting it from Australia. No, that's, it's a good point. I think the, um, there's another element to that, and that is the, the general easing of visas that people can come and to and from the UK, um, you know, is going to play in there as well. I think, you know, and again, trying to look at the glass half full here, um, you know, agriculture has this opportunity now while things are, uh, are in a pretty good space uh, yep. to try and build that story and attract people out there. Because you and I both know, having been in agriculture for, forever, it's a wonderful place to work and you can be at a, a range of different levels. You can be at the, the really top level running a high level investment fund property or you can be the, the people out there who are just doing that wonderful um, services that are, that are required to, as, I think as um, 
Fiona Simpson said the other day, we need people to make sure we're planting and picking our food so it keeps getting in, onto the shelves. So Absolutely. that's a challenge. Yeah, and I think you know that the diversity of employment and agriculture. I think that's what I really love about it. Um, and you know, there are people involved in this industry from hay right through to Pitt Street in Sydney, right? As I say, and right through to London. But they're all you all have the opportunity to work. And and you know, what I loved about my career was the ability to transfer from places such as Moree, which I loved, and but working in to working in in high street Melbourne or high street Sydney, wherever it is. And a lot of my friends work in New York in agriculture. So um, yeah, certainly those opportunities are only opening up more and, and they're exciting and you can, you can mix and match as you go along in your career. And I, 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 I challenge anyone to find another career that allows you to do that like that. Well, you're hundred percent right. I mean, I'm, you mentioned, Hey, I mean, I'm doing this um, podcast today for anyone's interested uh, from main street of Hay. And uh, you're probably in Pitt Street, uh, Geelong, David. But <laughs> driving up here today, it just it, it opens your eyes up a little bit because uh, you know you you come through um, prime lamb country, you come through cattle country, you come through um, grazing and wheat country, and then you get into uh, irrigated country, and now we're in cotton and rice country. And uh, I've only been driving for five hours, so there is a lot of there's not only diversity of the types of positions and roles you can have but diversity of industry and um, you would have seen David over your career that once someone's had a bit of a go in one part of agriculture they build skills that actually translate into others oh absolutely and, and we used to talk about you know how um, you know when we used to talk to farmers um, especially when things were a bit tough in the late 80s early 90s mate, they say well listen I'm just a farmer which is a term that that annoys yeah. the bejesus out of me um, but um, because they're not, because they've actually run one of the most complex businesses that you can. No other business do you have this interface between the biological system and, and, the, and the financial system and the production system. So the actual challenge of running that is you you won't, and as I say, I've banked a lot of different businesses and you will not have something that is as challenging as that. So that gives you competencies and capabilities that other in, industries that have got nothing to do with agriculture love. And so we were able to, when people were finding it tough, especially through the wool crash and had to leave, you know, we had people ringing us up, offering one person three or four different jobs. So, you know, that hasn't changed. And I think that self-starting mode and ability to be adaptive and make decisions is something that, that, that people, employees, I think, you know, are very competitive for. Well, we're, we're a great fan of people coming into agriculture with, without necessarily having to be born and bred into it because we think they've got a lot to add and we've certainly yep. got examples of that. Absolutely. In but we're also fans of uh, what you do at Marcus Oldham and uh, I think our conversation today is just reinforcing that uh, while we'd love to be wind the clock back 30 years, David, yep. we're, we're damn grateful that we're in an industry that is, is so dynamic, has such a good outlook and it's, it's it's just interesting. Oh, mate, I just find it so exciting. And I, and I think this whole relationship, the ability to actually get involved in the food chain and understand it, you know, whether you're a primary producer or whether you're only working in, in service industry and things like that, you know, the craze that it's becoming more trans, uh, transparent, it's, 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 we're getting the ability to actually understand it more. Um, it just opens up the opportunities. Well, uh, when we discussed, having a podcast about the free trade 
announcement. Um, uh, Dave, in the office, said, why don't we get you on? It's a great idea, and we all agreed. Um, but it's interesting how we can get uh, sidetracked, although it, it's, it's a great thing to do in agriculture because we want to talk about the positives. You want to make sure there's a holistic view of what's going on. So, David, we're, we're very, very grateful to you um, for giving us your time. I know Olivia will give a little plug to your podcast, and uh, we wish you all the best, and thank you for your time on Commodity Conversations. Rob, it's a pleasure, mate. Anytime you want to talk egg, uh, always up for a chat. Good on you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, David and Rob, for the discussion today. And listeners, I hope you got as much out of it as I did, sitting here with just five careers under my belt. And what Rob and David were saying about the opportunities in agriculture definitely ring true, and it's great to hear their passion when talking about it. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast, and as always, we really appreciate any reviews and ratings. Thanks, and we'll speak to you again in a week's time. (laughs) 